This is the American Association of Orthodontists, the Business of Orthodontics podcast, episode 16. Welcome. I'm Pam Paladin here with Kevin Dillard, AAO's General Counsel, and Sean Murphy, the AAO's Associate General Counsel. We have a robust episode for you today, touching on the upcoming election and the AAO Political Action Committee. We'll be joined momentarily by Kevin O'Neill from Arnold and Porter, the AAO's Legislative Council in Washington, D.C. We're joined via Skype by Kevin O'Neill from Arnold and Porter, the AAO's Legislative Council in Washington, D.C. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Delighted to be with you guys. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. It's always, always a pleasure. So uh, what's it like in D.C. today? I'm uh, assuming it's probably anything but business as usual with the election looming. Well, with 21 days uh, away from the election and most uh, political figures are home in their uh, respective states or congressional districts uh, running for re-election or campaigning for their colleagues and allies or against their opponents uh, for their respective parties, trying to take control of the White House and uh, Congress for the year that will start uh, January 3rd, 2017. Is it a ghost town for the for the time being? You know, it is starting to clear out. You certainly have a lot of congressional staffers who are leaving to go hit the campaign trail either for their boss or to be loaned out to uh, uh, their respective parties. And you have a lot of uh, people ramping up, going out working for the presidential campaign since that's three weeks out. And uh, that will continue. uh, We'll continue to see people sort of leak out of Washington uh, right up until the week before. There will be hundreds of Hill staffers who are out on the 72-hour program uh, working the weekend before the election on basic uh, turnout uh, activities. That's very important for uh, both campaigns, although uh, given that Mr. Trump hasn't put together much of a turnout machine, uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, whether or not he has some of those traditional bells and whistles of a campaign. What kinds of things would you think our members would be most interested in uh, that's happening with the election right now? Well, I mean, it's clearer to everyone who's watching that we remain very much a divided country, uh, red and blue, with very different perspectives on what's happening. Uh, what you think about economic conditions drives uh, relates very directly to what you think about your incumbent member of Congress and what you think about uh, what the proposed solution should be coming out of the White House for the next four to eight years. Uh, when you look inside the polling data, Hillary Clinton draws her support from people who believe that uh, their life is better off after eight years under Barack Obama and that uh, the nation today in 2016 better reflects their values than it did eight years ago. Conversely, Mr. Trump's uh, political support comes overwhelmingly from voters who believe that their economic conditions have deteriorated over the last eight years or that they are similarly negative for the four years to come unless aggressive actions are taken. Uh, And those voters for uh, backers of Mr. Trump are also much more likely to believe that the uh, values of the country are less reflective of their own personal values than they were eight years ago. So really, uh, we remain in very red state, blue state situation, and uh, we're about to decide which uh, half of the country gets to be in charge. What about those people who are thinking, "I'm not going to go. I'm not going to vote for any of those candidates." What would your What would your advice be? Stay home, go to the polls. What should they do? Well, you know, we always say if you don't go to the polls, you have no right to complain about the results for the next few years. And uh, every election is the most important election of our lifetime. This one is obviously uh, 
uh, very critical. We're about to determine whether or not the changes made by President Obama and his administration for the last eight years get locked in by his successor, Hillary Clinton, or whether or not we uh, basically elect someone who intends to unravel many of the signature domestic and foreign policy achievements of the last eight years in President Obama. There's a pretty stark choice. Uh, almost everyone has an opinion and has uh, well-thought-out reasons for that, and we would want to encourage everybody to get, get out and vote and do their civic duty. Uh, staying on the sidelines and hoping that people pick uh, the best remedy for you is not usually a path to success. So all that said, Kevin, what's your prediction on the White House, House, and Senate? How's it going to go? Well, uh, it's a great question, Kevin. The the White House right now, as we look three weeks out, most of the political uh, prognosticators uh, and the various statistical models have Hillary Clinton with about a 70 to 85 percent chance of winning the White House. She consistently leads in almost every battleground state uh, that's up for grabs, and she has a multitude of pathways to gain 270 electoral votes to win the White House. Donald Trump has a very narrow pathway. He needs to have an extremely high turnout from base Republicans, and he needs to have millions of Reagan Democrats show back up to the polls and uh, vote for him. Right now, the, the polling data doesn't show that. But uh, this is a guy who's been tremendously pummeled in the last few weeks, and yet all the polls show him within striking distance of Hillary Clinton. So if you're Hillary, you're a little bit scared about the fact that you haven't been able to pull away despite all the negative attention on uh, your opponent. And if you're Trump, you're a little bit uh, encouraged by that. Uh, I think we're going to continue to see some some very nasty things come out about both candidates in the next week or two, and uh, we'll see whether or not either of those has an achievement uh, or has that I'm sorry has an impact on uh, what voters will decide. Uh, so I think if you're Hillary Clinton, you're a little happier with where you stand today. But if you're Donald Trump, I think you have legitimate reasons to believe that at a time when two thirds of America thinks the country's headed on the wrong path. Uh, voting for the agent of change is more likely to occur in the ballot box than voting for more of the same. And that's that's essentially what the two candidates are. Trump is coming as an agent of change and Clinton is running as a third term of the Obama administration. Uh, before we leave the presidential campaign, though, I've, I've read a lot of analysis um, that says that really Pennsylvania is the keystone state in more ways than than just their state logo. It, is it is Trump? Is it a must win state for Trump for his path? Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting situation. Certainly, he would be much better off if he could win Pennsylvania. Uh, but Pennsylvania has largely been polling fairly strongly for Hillary Clinton the last few weeks, in many cases well outside the margin of error in the seven to nine point range. There are a lot of traditionally red states like in Arizona, Georgia, or even Texas, where Trump is in the four to five point range. So if, if Pennsylvania is a swing state, then that means there are some other uh, big traditional Republican states that are also swing states. Uh, Pennsylvania is really two different states. It's the Philadelphia market and, and Pittsburgh, and then it's everything in between. Typically, Democrats have uh, counted on rolling up about three quarters of a million to a million vote uh, lead in Philadelphia and uh, the surrounding environment, and then Republicans win most of the rest of the state. Uh, Donald Trump has not been doing well with uh, college-educated uh, women who are both uh, who are politically moderate, heads of household. Uh, you know, working. Uh, those tend to be people who've taken a very dim view of his uh, political positions and have also responded very negatively to his uh, his campaign allegations of the last few weeks. Unless he can change uh, change the perception with that group, it's very hard to see him winning Pennsylvania. 
Uh, he can still get to 270, but it becomes a much more difficult proposition for him to do so uh, just because so many of the naturally large states electorally, your California, New York, and Illinois, start off as uh, as easy Democratic wins. And I think right there, that's uh, 100 or so uh, electoral votes towards the 270 you need. So segueing into the House, um, we've seen something pretty extraordinary over the last week or so, which is a, a nominee of a party campaigning against the Speaker of the House, a member of his own party. Is this a calculated move by both Paul Ryan and Donald Trump to kind of play off of each other? Um, and how does that play out in some of the, uh, the close races that, that Paul Ryan has to win in order to keep the majority? Well, I, I laugh only because a lot of that depends on uh, a voter's perception of whether or not they believe anything that uh, Mr. Trump does is calculated or if it's largely un- unintentional moving from point to point. Uh, certainly, I don't think that that Mr. Ryan, as Speaker of the House, is looking to engage in a, in a uh, war of words with the presidential nominee of his own party. That doesn't do him any good in most instances. Um, so I don't think that, that he calculated on his side. On Mr. Trump's side, I think there is a lot to suggest that he actually is calculating in coming out against all establishment figures. And the Speaker of the House is clearly an establishment figure and saying, look, Washington's broken. I intend to upend all of the, uh, the rules there. I intend to fix things. Uh, and going after uh, Ryan is, is, is just another sign of that. Um, I think a lot of people in Washington who are Republican would rather see their nominee fight the Democratic nominee than fight members of his own party. Uh, but I think a lot of them, certainly official Republican Washington, uh, most of that community has long ago written off Mr. Trump's chances. Uh, and a number of them have actually openly sided with uh, uh, Secretary Clinton in this race. So uh, he, I think Trump sees that and he he runs against that as hard as he can, figuring that that appeals to a number of people who think the country's headed in the wrong direction and, and a pox on all their houses if you've been in charge of anything in Washington during that time period. In terms of what it means for the House, I think the House is still uh, likely to stay Republican. Probably as we speak today, it's probably about a 75 to 80 percent chance. Uh, Democrats need to read, uh, need to pick up 30 seats in this election. And um, there are only about three dozen competitive races, according to the Cook Political Report in the House this year. Six of those are held by Democrats. So they have to either run the table on all of the races that uh, that the outside objective reporters consider to be up for grabs, or they have to have such a wave brought in by Hillary Clinton that some people who weren't in trouble end up in trouble on election night. Right now, the, the polling data doesn't show that. There are certainly some people that are normally safe that are in, in trouble, but they're all inside of that universe of three dozen races that we mentioned. Uh, I think our projection right now is that Republicans will lose somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 18 seats. That makes for a very narrow and difficult majority for Speaker Ryan if he continues as Speaker. But ironically, the people who are going to lose are going to be uh, moderate Republicans from suburbs. And the uh, conference that comes back, whether or not it's in the majority or minority, will actually be politically more conservative and more difficult for uh, Speaker Trump or whoever they spe- the next Republican leader is uh, to handle. Now, it's a little bit different story on the Senate side, Kevin, where uh, we in the forecast that we give to you all, our most recent forecast uh, that came out this past Monday, uh, reflected a, a poll results that showed Republicans holding the Senate by a margin of 51 to 49. Uh, right now, Republicans start out with 54 seats. 
uh, but they have many more seats uh, that are in play and competitive in this election cycle than Democrats do. So Democrats are on offense, Republicans are on defense. Uh, at this point, uh, the establishment seems to have written off two of those seats already, and that's uh, Illinois, where Mark Kirk has been uh, pretty consistently down, and Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson has been down in a rematch from six years ago with former Senator Russ Feingold. He's been down in the 8- to 10-point range uh, for most of this year. So then that gets you from 54 to 52. Uh, you've got about uh, 10 seats that are really up in the air. Republicans have done a good job locking up some seats that – People thought might be competitive earlier this year, Iowa, Georgia, uh, in particular, Ohio, where Rob Portman's probably running the best Senate campaign of anybody. He started out behind a former uh, popular Democratic governor, and now every poll has him up in a 10 to 15 point range. And uh, you know, he's, he's done the right job of sort of distancing himself from Trump while embracing some elements of change. So the real keys to the Senate uh, are going to be New Hampshire, North Carolina, Missouri, Nevada, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Florida. Uh, those eight races, whoever wins the majority of those is going to be uh, the majority party in the Senate. Uh, we think that uh, the high-end mark is probably 52 seats for the Republicans or 53 seats for the Democrats, uh, absent, again, some stunning revelations in the next few days that has a, a larger wave breaking for Hillary Clinton. Uh, one interesting point, uh, Kevin, is, is that Clinton does not appear to have electoral coattails. Normally, you, you would expect to see uh, a president be able to carry a couple of her party's nominees across the finish line in these races. But in many cases, uh, even though Donald Trump has very low approval ratings, Republicans are outrunning Trump in these, uh, in these Senate campaigns by anywhere from five to ten points. And there's just not a lot of sign that uh, people are – uh, voting down ballot for Clinton's preferred candidates. In fact, there's some suggestion that uh, many candidates are, or many voters are going to be ticket splitting, uh, voting for Clinton as the preferred alternative and then voting for a Republican senator, hoping that a Republican Senate can keep uh, Hillary Clinton in check in the White House. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. The Senate is very fluid uh, and will be right up till late in election night when uh, Nevada is probably the last state to report in and Arizona. Uh, those two those two races late on election night could decide who the majority party is. Kevin O'Neill, Sean Murphy here real quick with the AO. You've talked a lot about poll numbers and they're, you know, being up a certain percentage or down a certain percentage. Can you indicate to us kind of how these polls are derived, if there would be a possibility of surprise where the polls numbers, the polling numbers would be way off, just given some of the candidates that are running. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the polls are no longer as valid as they were uh, a decade ago. In part, that's because a lot of polls haven't switched their methodology to account for an electorate that uh, does all their business online or doesn't have a landline phone and wants to be contacted by cell. So you see a lot more disparity these days between what the polls show leading up to an election and what the results uh, show. I think, uh, again, that the universe of states we talked about in the Senate, none of those will be a surprise if they flip. Um, I think they're all right now in the, in the stage where somebody can, can have a really good three weeks and win and somebody can have a really bad three weeks and, uh, and lose. Uh, you, you, the numbers I look at are less the – uh, the sort of day-to-day -day snapshot of who's winning and who's losing, because in a lot of these races, it oscillates every day between being up two points and being down one point, et cetera. 
Uh, I again go back. I go back to some base numbers. What do people think about the direction of the country? What do they think about the president's job appro- approval rating? We've only had a couple of instances in American history uh, in our lifetime where we've given a party three consecutive terms in the White House spread out over two presidents. Uh, and so if people have a positive approval of Barack Obama, that really increases Hillary, chance- Hillary Clinton's chances of winning. Right now, the composite of his job approval rating is 53 approved, 44 uh, disapproved. That's a very strong number for him. It's a very good rebound in the last 18 months or so. That bodes very well for Secretary Clinton in three weeks. Conversely, when you ask, uh, how's the country doing? You get very strong numbers. Uh, somewhere around two-thirds think the country's headed in a negative direction. Around 30% on average think things are headed in the right direction. That would normally trend very, very well for the opposition party trying to retake the White House. But of course, uh, Mr. Trump is a uh, is a unicorn or a black swan candidate, a once in a lifetime situation, and, and he just changes a lot of the rules. Uh, I will mention one thing there, Sean, which is uh, um, Kevin Dillard asked about Speaker Ryan and and the box that uh, Donald Trump put him in. We see a lot of indication that House Republicans, in particular, and a few. Senate Republicans in key races are having trouble uh, with this proposition, which is if you uh, disavow Mr. Trump as the nominee, you turn off some of your most fervent base supporters who will turn out and vote for the Republican candidate no matter what. Uh, And if they may choose to vote for Mr. Trump and then not vote in your race at all, uh, and you need those folks. If you don't disavow Mr. Trump in some of these races, you turn off some of the moderate supporters who tend to be the swing people who decide uh, the election when it's decided on the margins in a given year. Uh, So I think a lot of Republicans that are in shaky races find themselves unable, unsure of which way to go. And by trying to walk that tightrope, they end up uh, ticking off both sides. Uh, We'll be interesting to see whether or not that that proves to be the undoing of some folks on election night in three weeks. I'd like to throw out just a question for all three of you for Kevin O'Neill, Kevin Dillard, and Sean Murphy. Is there an election outcome, whether it's the the, the House and Senate in, in the presidential election, is there an outcome that bodes better for AAO members and the patients they serve? I'll take a first shot at that. I, I think, as I've talked to orthodontists, um, you know, probably I think we could look at empirical studies that we've done that show that most orthodontists vote Republican, uh, small, smaller percent vote Democrat, an increasing number are self-identifying as independents. I think the number one issue, so far as I know, is economic growth. So much of the problems that we have in the orthodontic industry would go away if we went from 1.5 or 1.7% growth, depending on who you look to, to, to tell you such things, to 4% growth or even 3.5% growth. Um, I think George Will said it best at our last advocacy conference that at 15 to 2% uh, growth, Americans are tearing each other apart. But at 3%, we're all happy and driving new cars and getting upgrades in our homes. Um, so, you know, wh- whatever path I think the individual orthodontists look at this, is it a divided government? Is it a Hillary Clinton presidency with a Republican Congress? Or is it a, a, a fully Republican a sweep or a full Democrat sweep. I, you know, whatever is going to get the economy growing over two and a half, three percent. Sean, did you want to add anything to that? Well, no, I, I mean, I definitely agree with that sentiment. At the same time, I think, you know, especially in the last four years, we've seen a lot of gridlock in Washington, and you know, anything 
that would get things done. I mean, we see it with our own RAISE Act where we're trying to get the bipartisan support and people are playing politics in Washington. And I think for the most part, citizens and our own members are tired of that. They want change. They want things to get done. And they want to send people to Washington that are, that are going to get things done. So, of course, a, a strong economic policy um, definitely helps both our members and their patients. So I agree with Kevin and what he has to say. Uh, Sean had a couple of very good uh, points there, uh, and I would, would echo them. On In terms of what uh, Kevin Dillard said, I mean, I think uh, what's best for the AEO is to have a, uh, a Congress that's united behind some principles that make health care affordable and accessible to everybody. Uh, Sean mentioned, uh, you know, people being tired of gridlock, and there is polling data uh, that we look at in the last month or so that shows people are getting more comfortable with the idea that maybe you break the gridlock by having one party be in charge of Washington instead of having a split government. And uh, so we may see that that result. But uh, I, less about Republicans or Democrats, we have to ask the question, have the, have the changes that have been uh, made to the health care system benefited our patients on balance or have they harmed them? Uh, and there's certainly evidence in both directions and people can be free to make the choice that they want. But I think as healthcare professionals, the AAO, uh, they, the members are concerned about whether or not we are building a system where orthodontics is largely outside of the Affordable Care Act and, and the uh, restrictions that it has imposed on the healthcare system. But the more you strangle the healthcare system, uh, the more we become an innocent bystander uh, that's injured as, as, as a result of the process. And so I think I've got a lot of great concern there about are we electing people who are going to look for ways to fix uh, the problems that uh, have long existed in the healthcare system, but also fix the problems that are clearly evident in the last uh, six years since we passed the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Because if you allow those problems to uh, uh, ferment and grow, then it will be very difficult for us to have the sort of uh, profession that we want that makes uh, orthodontics so attractive to uh, smart people, motivated people who want to run their own business and want to be healthcare professionals going forward. Can we shift gears just a little bit and talk about the AAOPAC, the Political Action Committee, and what's going on with the AAOPAC currently? The AAOPAC, of course, is the orthodontist voice in Washington. We currently um, are, you know, getting ourselves behind many different races uh, in Congress as well as the Senate. So we take members' money, we pool it together, and we contribute to the campaigns of candidates that are most closely aligned with orthodontist interests. So that's what the PAC's up to. We're, we're uh, trying to move forward with the RAISE Act and the PAC's supporting those endeavors, as well as getting a, a repeal, permanent repeal of the medical device tax. And also student debt is definitely in our crosshairs as one of the agenda items we'd like to focus on when politics or, you know, when the politicians are elected and Congress resumes come January 2017. Sean, I'm really glad you brought up the RAISE Act. Um, that's something that uh, I think is very close to the AAO's heart. Uh, it's something that the AAO has worked very hard toward uh, um, getting passed. And I'm pleased to say, for those who may not be aware, that just recently, the RAISE Act was introduced in the Senate. This is a great success story for the AAO on so many levels. The AAO has been actively involved in developing the ideas that became the RAISE Act. 
working with the house folks to have it introduced. Uh, we've done a great job of bringing members to town the last few years to advocate for it and to get other medical professions to adopt the RAISE Act as part of their list of public policy priorities in Washington as well. The results of that on the House side, we've got 78 sponsors right now, and we've got an increasingly clear path for an opportunity for this to be considered in uh, reform bills to come down the line. As you mentioned on the Senate side, it was introduced uh, late this summer by Kelly Ayotte, Republican senator from New Hampshire. She introduced the legislation specifically because members of uh, the AAO uh, came from New Hampshire and talked to her about how uh, this would positively impact their patients, uh, their employees, and their ability to serve as medical professionals. Uh, She's got a good relationship with members in the state and uh, really heard them and wanted to work on this. And uh, we were excited when uh, earlier this fall, uh, last month actually, we had uh, AAO President Dr. McCamish and AAO Executive Director Chris Brannis come to town along with uh, Kevin Dillard and Sean Murphy to do some lobbying. And uh, part of that lobbying resulted in Senator Roy Blunt, Republican from Missouri, where the AAO is headquartered, uh, becoming the second sponsor in the Senate of the AAO. And uh, I'm sorry, of the RAISE Act. And I think uh, Dr. McCamish and uh, Chris Brannis would probably say that they feel they're likely to see some more sponsors come out of the visits that the leadership team had here in Washington just a few weeks ago. Yeah, we were also beyond the uh, sponsorship from Senator Roy Blunt. We also had two representatives from the U.S. House of Representatives join on as sponsors for the RAISE Act to take the 76 sponsors of the RAISE Act in the House and bring it up to 78. I'd like to throw in a plug for something that's on our public website, mylifemysmile.org, and that is a section called Support the Raise or Support the FSA Increase. And it's a, a mechanism for AAO members to uh, inform patients and people in their communities to uh, about what the Raise Act is and how they can support it, uh, who is currently sponsoring the bill in uh, the House and in the Senate. Uh, there are suggested letters to send to uh, to your elected officials in Congress and also information on how to contact, find contact information, rather, for your elected officials. So that's mylifemysmile.org and click on Support FSA Increase for information about the RAISE Act uh, and how to um, affect its passage. So, Kevin O'Neill, does this stand, uh, uh, does the bill stand much of a chance of passing uh, this Congress, uh, possibly in the lame duck session after the election? Well, a lot of it depends on who wins the election and what that means for a lame duck. We've seen everything from a very, very short lame duck uh, where they pass a spending bill and get out of town to a very productive lame duck where a lot of big deals are cut on uh, legislation that's been log jammed for years. Uh, and until you know who the winners and losers are, it's very difficult to forecast what sort of things they might work on. Uh, I suspect that healthcare reform is something that's big enough that it's going to, we're not going to see any small pieces of it move during the lame duck, but that we are really just sort of putting the chess pieces in the right place for a much more positive discussion on what to do about healthcare reform and why it should include uh, expansion uh, of FSAs. Uh, when we get back to the new Congress starting in January. Kevin Diller, do you have a, another question, comment? Yeah, one last question, Kevin. Every election, it seems like, has some surprise, something that something some somebody wins or loses that nobody saw coming. What's your prediction for this year? What's the surprise? <laughs> 
I, I laugh only be, because uh, uh, if there's anyone who knows that I'm not so good at political predictions, it's Kevin Dillard. Uh, it reminds me constantly that uh, my past political predictions have not come out uh, very well. Uh, you know, I don't have I don't have a good sense of that. I mean, I think there's there's nothing right now. There's no one who's uh, unknown. Their their danger is unknown, I guess. Uh, I think the thing that would surprise me most is we're three weeks out is if the uh, Republicans lost control of the House. I think they'll see their majority narrow, but I think the um, the sort of uh, built-in advantages that they have from the redistricting in 2010 and being the majority party uh, will be enough to see them through to hold on to their majority. So if somehow uh, it turns out that there is a wave election and Hillary Clinton brings in uh, at least 35 uh, new Democrats in the House, that would be what would surprise me most. We'll see what happens come November 9th. <laughs> we'll check back with you after the election. That was Kevin O'Neill, the AAO's Legislative Council with Arnold and Porter in Washington, D.C., joining us by Skype today. Kevin, thanks very much for taking the time. And that's a wrap for Episode 16 of the AAO's The Business of Orthodontics podcast. Thanks to Kevin Dillard, AAO's General Counsel, Sean Murphy, the AAO's Associate General Counsel, and Kevin O'Neill from the firm of Arnold and Porter, the AAO's Legislative Council in Washington, D.C. Join us for future podcasts as AAO experts explore questions and issues that are important to you and your orthodontic practice. If you have subject areas you'd like to hear addressed on a future podcast, please email them to info at aaortho.org or call 800-424-2841. This is Pam Paladin. Thanks for listening to the Business of Orthodontics podcast, episode 16.